Before we get started, I want to tell you about my friends at Lean Solutions Group. Lean works with over 500 logistics and transportation companies in North America. You can describe Lean as a nearshoring company or a workforce optimization company, but as a customer, I describe Lean as a strategic partner who can help me win in a very competitive industry. They can quickly provide your company with top talent in operations, sales, marketing, technology, and business process outsourcing. They have over 9,000 employees in Colombia, Guatemala, Mexico, and the Philippines. Everyone is working with LSG. You need to check out the link in the show notes. Hello, friends. Welcome to the Logistics of Logistics podcast. My name is Joe Lynch. Thank you so much for joining us today. On the Logistics of Logistics, I talk to experts in logistics and transportation, warehousing, fulfillment, supply chain, and of course, technology. And during these interviews, I'm always the one asking the dumb questions. I ask the dumb questions so you don't have to. Today's topic is bridging supply chain silos with my friend Pawan Joshi. Pawan is the Executive Vice President, Product Management and Strategy at E2Open. E2Open is a supply chain platform that is helping the world's largest companies transform the way they make, move, and sell goods and services. Our data is trapped in silos. We can't glean the insights we so desperately want or take advantage of AI until we begin using a unified platform like E2Open. Juan is a very interesting and knowledgeable guy. Please check out our conversation. How's it going, Puan? Doing great, Joe. So I know I probably botched your name. So please introduce yourself and your company where you're calling from today. No problem, Joe. My name is Pavan Joshi. I'm calling from Dallas, Texas. It's going to be a balmy 107 today. I work for a company called E2Open. We provide software as a service purely in the supply chain space, serving some of the largest and biggest brands in the world that we all use. Wow. Too open. Now, where'd you come up with that name? It's something to do with our heritage. We were started about 23, 24 years ago as a consortium with IBM being one of the main founders, bringing together Panasonic, Lucent, Seagate, which is now part of Flixtronic. Those are some pretty rich parents. Very rich parents. And the idea was, this was at the beginning of outsourcing when in the high-tech space, factories were being sold, contract manufacturing facilities were being created. You tend to lose track of, you, you, you own the finished product, you own the customer, but you lose track of how the product is actually made and delivered to the customer. So what EDOPEN was founded but primarily to, precisely to solve that problem is how do you actually orchestrate a supply chain that you don't own, but you're very much reliant on bringing products to market? So you asked about the name. A few things that we very quickly realized that we had to do was, number one, we had to be able to connect to every entity that was a part of that supply chain, extended supply chain. Number two, we had to operate outside of the four walls of any one of the single entities because we had to connect all of them, right? And number three, we had to operate with the constraints that each entity had. We had to be an open platform. And what we were really doing was we were connecting enterprise to this open platform. So that's the heritage of E2 Open. And since we are born in the, in the Silicon Valley, you had to have a uh, a catchy name and E2Open was the name that stuck around. I know you guys are a leader in the space. Yeah. And I know I didn't, I never talked to anyone on my podcast from E2Open and I had it in my head that it was a TMS. And before we hit record, you said, yes, it's a TMS, but so much more. So <laughs> who's your customers? Who's your sweet spot? 
Yeah, some of the largest brands in the world, think about, uh, tend to be our target audience. Uh, if not, they are already our customers. Um, we like to break our, our, our target audience into three categories, um, although they are sometimes overlapping. We serve some of the largest companies that bring products to market that make products. We also serve some of the largest companies that sell products on behalf of companies that are making them, the retailers, the distributors, the value-added resellers. And then we also serve a large group of companies that are in the middle bringing products from where they're made to where they're sold. Uh, think about the logistics service providers, the carriers, the forwarders of the world. So that tends to be our, our sweet spot. And we tend to serve some of the largest companies in the world. Think the global 5,000 companies in the world, really, uh, that operate at, at large scales that are multinational, uh, have operations uh, across the globe, across multiple nations, uh, tend to have complex supply chains. And that's what we help them solve from an end-to-end perspective. So I love what you said, your three users, the first makers. So that'd be the, it might be a consumer brand or it could be automotive part. It could be automotive stuff. And then there's the sellers which could be the Amazons of the world or distributors or retailers. And then the movers, which is the transportation and logistics folks. So you sell to all three. Makers. I've never heard anyone say makers, sellers, and movers. <laughs> I love it. Yeah. Simple way for us to get aligned. Um, I think the most important thing um, in, in software in my mind, and I run products and strategy for you to open. So in my mind, front and center is to understand who you're serving and I think this categorization helps us put the right personas in place as we are not only building software, but also creating the right experience and end-to-end customer experience for our users. So we find it very helpful to simplify it up into those three words. Uh, but of course, there are nuances as you go across industries and specific products. I like what you said, end-to-end. And I would also look when I'm from automotive and used to do value stream mapping, which we would look at from order to cash. From the time I get the order to the time I get the cash, if it's 16 weeks, I want to move it to 14 weeks, then 12, then 10. I want to have as many turns as I can get, right, on my inventory. And a lot of times people in transportation and logistics say, oh, yeah, we have end-to-end. And what they mean is from the time I pick it up at at your location to the time I drop it off, you have end-to-end visibility. You're like, that's two or three days of visibility. Great. But that's not the end-to-end that you're talking about. You're talking from uh, the factory floor or the order way back in, could be Vietnam or China or India, Mexico, all the way to the retail location or to the consumer's front porch. Yeah. And I think, again, we'll use a few phrases here, right? You can think about from seed to your dining room, right? We'd like to think about that end-to-end, right? All the way from from silica to laptops, all the way from an end-to-end perspective. You think about automotive all the way from uh, individual component, three, four, five, six years down in the supply chain to, you know, how we actually drive cars today and how we'll drive them in the future. So for us, it's, you talked about the order to cash as an example, but in order to actually get the order satisfied, that ordering process is actually nested. Somebody actually got my order to produce what I need to produce my order. And, and it keeps going on and on until the end, right? And that's really what we're trying to solve is in this hyper-connected global world where we are relying on not just me and my immediate tiers to buy and sell. I'm actually relying on my, my constraints and my true disruptions actually come from people that I don't even know are responsible for producing stuff that goes into my products. It's like, that's really what we need to discover. More so than ever before, because right now 
we're being told you can't work with um, the one province in China that has Uyghur slave labor. And I think we all agree with that. But being able to say I have a, a digital view of that is is tough. And again, I've done business in China in the past, and there was a company that I won't mention their name. It's not important anymore, but they were accused of using slave labor back in the 70s. I was working there in the 80s. And they said, we weren't, but we had a partner who was using um, slave labor against, we had no knowledge of it. And that lack of visibility is damning. <laughs> Absolutely is. I think even more recently, you, you saw one of the largest you know, hard drive manufacturers in, in the world, storage company now in the world, uh, getting penalized um, because they were using products built in regions where they were sanctioned. And not because at that time they made the wrong decision. It was just that how you interpret the law, the rule of the law was very different back then versus now. So these are, I look at these as non-supply chain problems that actually affect supply chains. Oh, yeah. If you think about it, it, it's all the right things that we are doing for the most of the time uh, in terms of the, the broader ethical and uh, humanity related decisions. But these are external to supply chain. And so when we started thinking about the end-to-end view of, of supply chain, we basically said that, look, you cannot just stop at supply chain things only, like global trade, compliance, sanctions, filings screenings are a very important part of running a, a, stream, a streamlined supply chain. You talked about the Uyghur problem out there and how you have to, especially in automotive, basically that's being a big thing that comes into picture. Oftentimes you screen them when the shipment starts moving or shipment is at a destination. What we really need to do is to start thinking about it during the time of sourcing, during the time of selection of the partners, during the time of actually recognizing the fact that not just saying, do you do work there? But are your products relying reliant on someone that does work there? Going back to your examples from the 70s, right? We need to be able to think along those lines because not only do we need to protect our supply chains, but we also need to, we have an ownership, if you think about it from a supply chain standpoint, to be able to drive the right decisions ethically and human, humanitarianly across the globe. So I think it's really important for us to think about supply chains from that perspective. And that's really why global trade is a huge part of our platform offering in this in the space. Yeah. Boy, in the olden days, before mobile phones and before all this information was available, you didn't have to be a good corporate neighbor. You just had to pay PR to tell everyone you're a good corporate neighbor. Now, somebody just takes a picture and says, hey, look what I saw at this location. And your business is blown up. And I think most people want to do the right thing. But if you don't have knowledge that the wrong thing's happening on the other side of the world while you sleep, then you're in trouble. And by the way, it's not just who we work with, it's who we sell to. One of the people I advised had a real problem with the wrong kind of people trying to buy their product and then make that product into something it wasn't meant to be, <laughs> which was illegal. So they had the State Department all over them saying, make sure you don't sell to these people. These people were very persistent and they were trying to buy from every location in the world. And what they were looking for is somebody to make a mistake. Yeah. And you talked about the makers, you talked about the, the sellers, right? It's also true with the movers, right? We book about 24% of all freight that moves on containers on our platform. We, we cross-connected with hundreds of the largest ocean shipping carriers in the world. Now, one of the things we realized is very quickly, the container, the, the ships carrying your containers is following its journey. It stops in some port that you've sanctioned, right? 
It doesn't unload your container. It doesn't do anything. It unloads another set of containers. It comes back up. And the moment it reaches the destination port, chances are that your container is going to get quarantined, right? Because it went through that thing. So not just understanding who's, who's making your product, also understanding how your product is moving and who's moving it, and then also understanding how it's selling. And this is a very dynamic environment, as you can see, right? Sanctions are following all over the place with geopolitical reasons or trade reasons and trade sanctions. And so it's, it's a dynamic world in a dynamic supply chain that, is, that has to be all brought together. Right. Yeah. You've got to break well, those silos that traditionally existed across trade that was almost an afterthought. Oh, I'll file for the container when it gets to customs. No, you've got to do it way ahead of time. So I, I, I wanted to ask a little bit about you. So we will come back to this conversation. It's very interesting. Clearly things. So tell us a little bit about you. Where'd you grow up? Where'd you go to school? Give us some career highlights before you joined E2 Open. Yeah, so I, I grew up in India. My dad was in the army, so we moved around quite a bit. So my my usual mode of operation is to learn a lot quickly because you can't afford to be in a single place and not and, and have the luxury of time. So that's been my background. I did uh, my undergrad from an Indian Institute of Technology in Delhi and then came over to, to the U.S. for studies. I came to University of Wisconsin-Madison to do my master's. Oh, wow. Yeah. And uh, my advisor, Dr. Viramani, convinced me to stick around. And this was around in the 1998, 96, 98 time frame. E-commerce and the whole internet and what its use is going to be in the future world of supply chain and industrial engineering was up and coming. And I was doing my master's in manufacturing systems, which was very much in line with where the world was headed. So he convinced me, stay back, finish your doctoral studies. And in the process, let's look at where this internet thing is going to take us. <laughs> like I said, my, my dad was in the army, so never spent more than three, four years at a single place. Ended up spending six years in Madison and then came, joined this company called I2 Technologies, which was putting together a framework to, to extend planning to the outside world, right? We called it back then, we, it was called Trade Matrix, Rhythm Collaboration Planning, and I was a product manager for that. And then I worked with I2, not for them, but with, with them, we were making an automotive application. Yeah. So then that got me to E2Open, right? When E2Open was founded, the problem that it was trying to solve was very similar to what the product that I2 was making. We cross-connected, licensed that product out, product to market. And then I moved with a team of about 13 people to each open to create the, the structure. And I've been here for 20 years now since played various roles all the way from building products to product managing it. And right now I run all of products and strategy for you to open. So my, my highlight of my career has always been throughout when I was fortunate enough, even back in Madison, to be exposed to a lot of industry and industry use cases. We did a lot of work. My advisor encouraged a lot of work directly with uh, manufacturing facilities over in Wisconsin and, and in neighboring areas. And then at E2Open, because our delivery model is a software as a service, we can't just sell shrink wrap software or CD and somebody else deploys for us. We got to own everything around it, right? And we run mission critical software. So you cannot be aware of what the customer's needs are and you cannot support their needs as, as they evolve. So that's been the career, my highlight, not only being I've uh, spent time in the academia studying the problem, but also being a practitioner delivering solutions for that, but also being an observer on how the academic uh, approach to solving these problems, the, the, the deployment of solutions, and then how the usage of that solution all comes together. For me, I'm, I've been fortunate enough to be in this spot observing all three. So I'm just curious, this is more on a personal note. When you moved to Madison, had you ever seen snow before? Had you ever been that cold before? Yes, yes. I, I should mention that back in India, I come from my, my native places up in the hills, in the Himalayas. So 
we would. So, yeah, so you weren't brand new to it. <laughs> once, once or twice a year. But here's the caveat, right? Because my dad was in the army, we I saw snow very little because we were never there in my native place, right? For the most part. So it was here and there. But one of the reasons why I came to Madison was because I, on the brochure that you get made in, there was no internet back then. There were great pictures of lake and, and Oh, skiing. yeah, it's a beautiful place. And, yeah, and, <laughs> and great pictures of skiing. I was like, yeah, I can get all of this in one place, so why not go there? And it's a great engineering school, and I was fortunate to get admitted to that. Yeah. Besides food and besides family and friends, what do you miss most about India? I, the most I miss about it, India is a, is a country that keeps you on your toes. Right? You just cannot relax, right? And it, it, everything is an adventure. And what I really miss is the diversity, the experience that you get as you go. There's something to be said about being stable and having a routine going. In India, you have your routine, but you also have your adventures. And that's something I miss. Now, before we hit record, I was just talking to you about this. There's a video that I, I'm sure lots of people have seen it. And I was talking about how successful Indian people are in the United States. And it is, I was telling you, my, my nephew's a very good student and he's on the tennis team, which is basically all Indian students. And by the way, the GPA for the tennis team is like 4.1. <laughs> and I was like, yeah, that's like a different world here, like a world within a world that is academically gifted, but also just the entrepreneurs that are look at Silicon Valley, how many founders and how many CEOs are from India. It's a huge number. Thank God we got you guys. Yeah, I think we've got, from an India's perspective, we've got numbers on our side, right? We are arguably the most populous nation in the world. So you will run into an Indian somewhere or the other. But I think the other thing, and as we were discussing, as we were chatting is, it is also about where you start seeing some of the best and the brightest. I think we need our systems to open up. We need the global economy to open up and we need to have the best people doing the best uh, at, at the place doing the best job that they can. So I think it's it's also like a, a natural selection process. And right now we, we tend to see Indians all over the place. 10, 15, 20 years ago, it was a different nation that was on top of it. I think Israel is doing great. There's a lot of innovation happening in China. There's so much... Germany has always been an industrial strength. I think these nations are going to be really solid. And I think we got to think about our talent pool as a global talent pool. And I think that's where we'll move forward. And if you think about human, humanity in, in general, there's so many big problems that we can solve if you put our big brains together and basically break down these walls. Yep. That's what we're talking about today. Bridging supply chain silos. So getting back to it, we have transportation management systems, which are great. Most of us are, uh, who are listening to my podcast probably either use one or sell one or at least know what they are. Sometimes we see transportation management systems bought by the largest companies. So the largest companies, shippers, supply chain companies, the General Motors, et cetera, they would typically go buy their own and then work with their suppliers. A lot of mid-market and smaller market companies will say, no, our 3PL has a TMS that we use. But getting back to it, I thought when I first, the first time I saw a TMS, I thought, this is it. This is the silver bullet that solves all my problems. And by the way, it solves a lot of problems, but it doesn't solve upstream in the supply chain, and it doesn't necessarily sell downstream in the supply chain. And the nature of supply chain, I've, I spent most of my career in automotive, the biggest, baddest supply chain on earth. And we would always say, if something was wrong, if you had a quality problem at the plant, it's usually not the plant. If it's a part, it's upstream. If it's the if there's a problem in the assembly line, 
usually the solution is upstream. And so we have always had these silos that prevent it, and they're t- usually technology silos. My ERP, it might be separate from my TMS, might be separate from my WMS, and might be different than the retailers using or warehouse using. And those silos basically meant I was going to optimize for my local area, even if it hurt the overall supply chain. Yeah, I think that's, you, you've hit the nail on the head, right? I think we are, the, the way our supply chains have evolved and the way our decision-making has evolved, it tends to be in silos and we are optimizing within our silos, right? And if we rewind the clock and go far back, our business processes have been broken down into silos, right? You look, you talked about the order to cash. In that order to cash, how many departments touch? Oh, yeah. So when you start thinking about that, and you start asking the question, logically, it doesn't, it's not that far-fetched that everything should be connected together. But if you rewind the clock, I think at some point in time, all our processes were unified when we were doing everything inside the four walls of the company. We had everything in here. We would like forward back in the early 1900s, like iron ore came from one side and cars rolled out on the other side. Everything was vertically integrated. When we started breaking down our functional boundaries for scale, we had to break it down because there was no technology available that could automate this. Like information flows did not exist. The compute bar did not exist. We were still operating on slide rules and log tables to do the mathematical computations. That's how we, the technology was holding the processes from getting unified. And when that was the case, we started breaking the problem down. Okay, let's create a transportation department that optimizes transportation. Let's create a procurement department that's going to give me the best price. Let's create a manufacturing department that's going to make sure everything gets produced. Let's create a sales department that's going to sell it and, and not be bothered about how things are made, right? Now, we fast forward now, the same functional boundaries along which we've created financial budgets. Like I have a budget to buy software and transportation. I'm going to look at the best transportation software that optimizes my transportation needs, right? But the process is holistic. So we're not, we, we've created the, our departmental boundaries, our functional boundaries, our process boundaries, and we stop there and we say technology stop there because that's all I'm interested in. Whereas now technology has actually spanned and has the ability to connect everything into them, almost yes. real time, as real time as possible, right? So this is the yin and yang, where the process was held back by technology. Now technology is held back by the process because that process has to evolve, right? The organizational boundaries have to evolve. That's why I keep talking about bridging, like the, the whole t- topic of this is you can't break the silence down. You better start by bridging them. And once you bridge them, that's when you see the art of the possible. Right now, it's it's like too much of a leap of faith for somebody to say, let's break down these silos. No, let's bridge them first. Understand when you work together, why expediting a late shipment might be a wrong answer to a problem because there's enough inventory at the destination. So let's bridge that silo of fulfillment at the destination with the transportation getting product into the destination. And when you start realizing that, look, your KPI of on-time delivery performance and transportation is not the right KPI when you start looking at what's happening at the destination. And you can start thinking about actually reducing inventory by letting your late shipments come late for whatever reason they are late. By the same token, if your shipment is, is actually running late, being able to diagnose why. It was, if it was late because the supplier didn't get it done in time, then let's go fix the supplier problem. Let's not go say our transportation department is bad, right? So you start by bridging that. And once you bridge that, then your processes start to evolve and start to think about it. So that's been really our philosophy as we started looking at e open and our platform is to be able to say, 
look, we will buy transportation as a transportation department. But let's talk about how, what does transportation look like when it is actually connected to the bookends, to the origin and to the destination. What happens with, before you pick it up and what happens after you drop it off? And that's when you can start having more intelligent transportation. Yeah, yeah, it's it, it makes a lot more sense. It's also I just as you were talking about that, it occurred to me that there's a lot of information out there, and us as humans are struggling to digest all that. So you might give all that to me and go, "Hey, Joe, I just sent you a spreadsheet with all of the information from all these different systems. Now you can make good decisions." I'd be like, "Oh, for one, I don't know that I can." <laughs> Another that's where, <laughs> but yeah. this is where, and I think you're, I didn't ask before we hit record, but I'm assuming you guys are starting to use AI for some of this, where you say AI can take in more of this information across multiple silos and start making better decisions. Ones that would be counterintuitive to me if I'm in the transportation department and all I see is transportation information. No, absolutely. So when we talk about technology, uh, we talk about not just the bits and bytes moving faster and the ability to digest them and map them and transform them, but also what you do with them. Like you're spot on. It's like suddenly when you start digitizing something, suddenly, let's say you put a sensor on on a truck that's moving, right? You will suddenly start getting data every millisecond if you want to. The question for you is to decide what do you do with that data? Like 99.999% of the data is like useless. But how do you actually sift through that one piece of information that tells you that truck actually went through a massive bump or that temperature sensor on that thing was faulty because of which the temperature actually exceeded a certain threshold because of which the product that is going to get delivered at the destination is going to be bad, whether it be in terms of shock value that you went through or broke the cold chain. Now, understanding that is super important. So how do you find the needle in the haystack is really the question, right? And you cannot do that by looking at spreadsheets you have to bring more and more automation into the mix. So what when we think about supply chain, we look at how do you automate it? And I look at AI as a means, as a tool that you have in that automation process. A lot of automation can be pure play optimization. You don't even have to have approximations. You can actually model the problem correctly and optimize it and get the optimal answer without even having to do it. Heuristics is another way. Like traditionally, you can bring all of that stuff. And now the hype around AI and machine learning and generative AI and all that stuff, super important. I think this brings more and more technology to solve the problem. But at the end of the day, you've got to figure out how do you automate it and how do you make it as much autonomous as possible, right? And when you talk about autonomous, it's not just about, okay, let the thing run. It's about at some point in time, if I ask the question, why did you make that decision? Be able to answer that. Be able to have explanation around the, the autonomous decisions that are being made at any point in time. Right? So when you combine them together, that's really how we think about it. It is in, in, in the more you increase the aperture of the problem, the more optimal your, or the more holistic your solutions are going to be, the better trade-offs you have. I want to take a quick time out to tell you, you can now listen to the logistics of logistics on Wreaths Across America Radio. I'll put a link in the show notes. Wreaths Across America provides informational, inspiring content about members of the U.S. Armed Forces, their families, and military veterans. Their mission is to remember, honor, and teach. Wreaths Across America succeeds because of the generous support of the trucking community. Take a listen and please consider volunteering. So getting back to it, by the way, Pawan, I was just thinking about this. I always say I, I like key performance indicators, KPIs, or key process indicators. So I always say only the very best metrics grow up to be KPIs. So 
if I'm running transportation or warehousing or production, I want five or six things that tell me this is running well, right? And for trucking or, or over-the-road transportation, it might be on-time performance, some sort of cost metric, some sort of cost measurement, damage, just a few, right? It occurs to me lately that's because I can't digest 30 metrics, but AI can. So I'm saying I, I like KPIs and I tell my team, only give me KPIs. That's because of my own brain's limitations. AI doesn't have that. So if you give it information and it says, Joe, the reason AI might say it, if they could talk to me, and I'm assuming they will soon, <laughs> they will say, Joe, we like all 30 or 40 or a thousand of these metrics because it gives us insights that those five KPIs don't give. Yeah, you're absolutely right. And for us, it was, we have a, a product line around what we call sensing, demand sensing, supply sensing, inventory optimization, transportation sensing. What it is really designed to do, and this was technology that we built about 15, 16 years ago, before AI was called AI, and it was a hype word. What it really does is, you think about it, it's trying to forecast what you're going to what you're going to sell, and it's forecasting not based on what you did last month or last year or last season. It's actually forecasting based on what orders are dropping in, and what shipments are actually going out in respect with respect to the order. So this is, if you think about the equivalent of that, is you don't when you want to go buy milk, you don't say, okay, what did I buy last week? What did I buy last time this month? This week? What did I buy last year? This time? This month? This week? What do you do? You open the fridge, you see how much milk is there, and then you say, okay, what am I going to do? Am I going to have a, 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 a bunch of my kids and their friends coming in and my, I plan to serve peanut butter, jelly, and milk as the, sun, uh, as, as the snack? Of course, I need more milk. But hey, I'm going on vacation next week. I don't need milk, right? You actually look ahead and plan, what are you trying to do? That's really what demand sensing is. It's not to look at historically what you did, which is where more, most transportation is. It's actually to bring in more and more parameters. Now, why did we do that? We did that historically because that was the only piece of information we had to forecast. Now we have tons of information. We have access to social media, what our likes are doing on products. We know what the weather pattern is going to be for the next X number of weeks with a high degree of confidence. We know if Hurricane Lee is headed over to Florida and we can course correct in terms of what is needed. We know what uh, sporting events and, and social events are happening. We know how we're traveling when we're not traveling. All that stuff can be absorbed in. And we also know what kind of promotions we want to run to influence that. When you bring it all that in, suddenly your forecasting process is not looking at historically. It's actually more focused on what you're doing to influence and generate that forecast. So our entire demand sensing is exactly in the line. Now, humans would never have been able to digest this. Only when you throw machines at it to solve the problem, you need to be able to do it. Now, the lesson that we learned as a part of that was we would actually, we have a forecast benchmark that we've been running for the last 10 years across some of the largest CPG companies in the world that use demand sensing, consistently beating the traditional forecasting by 20, 30%. Like you think about it, oh, wow. you're actually beating it, that it's a pretty big margin. But one of the challenges that we always had was the planners would always say, but I don't trust that forecast because I don't know how it is calculated. So you had to bring in some other explainability. What is driving this increase in forecast or decrease in forecast. So the attribution becomes important. The explainability becomes important. That's what I've meant by when you start making processes autonomous and automated, you've also got to be able to bring trust for the users. Otherwise, they won't use that. For I think what's interesting about it, and I know other people are doing that, I'm assuming you guys do it too, is 
One way to gain that trust is if you said, hey, let's look at your last year. And here's what we would have, based on the data you've given us, here's what we would have suggested. And here's what you did. And then they go, oh, it would have helped us here where we make, where we bought too much. And it would have told us not to buy that much. And then after a while, you don't necessarily have to trust it 100%. You say, it's an input, and but invariably, you're going to get to a place where you go, I trust the system over me. I trust the AI. And as soon as you, I always joke, say this, at one time we had all sorts of data. It was in file cabinets, literally file cabinets at my, in my office. So I didn't have access to that data. We could write the algorithms. It just didn't matter. The data was over here. We also didn't have the computing power. Now we have the computing power. We don't have file cabinets. We have our, all of our data is online and we've always been able to write those algorithms. So now we're able to be very powerful, develop very powerful insights, but we're going to have to learn to trust it. And by the way, I was a design engineer and I was a draftsman. So we used to de- develop auto parts. And I always remember when the CAD systems came in, I was still young, very young. And and I I I love the CAD systems, right? So they were very expensive then because they're all mainframe based and but they were super powerful. And I remember most of the <laughs> older engineers and younger engineers didn't trust what was what we were doing. So we were constantly printing things out and they were measuring stuff. They're like, I'll be damned, it's right. I don't know how, but it's right. <laughs> and it probably took a few years, literally a few years of us not trusting the CAD systems. And then after a while, you're like, okay, I get it. It knows what it, it's smarter than me. Okay, are you happy? <laughs> Another example of this is the maps on our smartphones. We trust them blindly now. In fact, we trust them to the extent where they actually tell us, don't follow this route. Or they have follow, I have found a faster I, route. And they hit, was, yes, take me there faster. <laughs> it's just a matter of time. I was driving with my mom somewhere and I was using Waze, which I think is owned by Microsoft now. Um, Google, I'm sorry. Yeah, Google Maps, same as Waze. And my mom's, I said, this doesn't seem right. My mom, who's in her 80s, says, you always should trust Waze. It knows things. <laughs> I, I was like, by the way, it is only okay in Detroit traffic. We shut down our expressways basically for the summer so we can repair them, so we can ruin them again in the winter. <laughs> so you can't trust Waze about the traffic cones right now. Anyway, Valerie, part of your PR team, suggested we talk about the case study. So there is a rice ban case study Set this problem up for us and talk about how you guys helped people solve this problem. Yeah, so here's another example of a non-supply chain event actually disrupting our our global supply chains and in ways that I think we probably don't even fathom, right? Rice is a pretty staple grain around the world, right? Wheat and rice are the two common ones that we always uh, use around the world. And about about 40% of the world's global export, and if you think about from trade, comes from India. And in, recently, about a month and a half ago, India imposed a ban on certain kinds of rice being exported. And what it really amounts to is a couple of low, if you think about various varieties of rice in terms of price points, it was really the lower price point variety that is more consumed in, inside India. And primarily it was done there because it was the anticipation was that, or it was anticipated that the weather patterns in, in South India uh, would be non-conducive, but we'll have less rains and we'll, we'll run into a shortage of rice. So it was done in anticipation of that. 
Now, the backdrop of that was a year before we had massive floods in Pakistan, which is another producer of rice, because of which there was shortage of rice at the backdrop. Um, there was there was a, a, a drought in China, which is another big producer of rice, right? So the, the, the way the conditions attributed, the, and, and rice prices have been like slowly going up. So that was the, the, the dynamic in which the environment, uh, the, 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 the problem arose. And all of a sudden there was, as we are now in the hyper-connected world, everybody started carrying this news and saying, there's going to be a shortage of rice, right? In different parts of the world. Now, if you double click back into the US, US, most of the rice that's consumed in the US is produced by US, other than the import that comes in for the bus, you know, there's a long grain rice. And that was not banned as a part of the Indian ban. So there was a lot of commotion around that. But what it really triggered was a recognition of why this happened, right? It's not, a, again, it's not a supply chain problem. It's actually supply chains reacting to weather patterns changing. And the anticipation is that with El Nino creeping in this year and for staying for the most part of this year, we'll actually see impact of other in, in other regions that produce rice. So what does that mean? It means the prices go up. There's a shortage. We've got to deal with that shortage. And the background of that shortage is the other grain, which is wheat. The wheat, which primarily Ukraine was a big producer of wheat and exporter of wheat, which is now suffering. Oh, yeah. So all of a sudden you realize that the supplier of grains is getting constrained around the world for non-supply chain reasons, right? It's agriculture, we depend on, on natural conditions being favorable. And then in geopolitical um, you know, trends tend to block and, and, and from a trade standpoint. Now, the side effect of that is when price of grains uh, or any commodity uh, in the ag world goes up, what happens? It actually attracts more farmers towards that grain. So this happened with soybean. It happened with corn back in, in the U.S. When the prices of soybean and corn started growing up, everybody wanted to plant soybean and corn and actually get benefit from that. Now, rice is at the receiving end of some of that stuff. We'll probably start seeing, and in fact, we've already started seeing a bit of rice production go up in the U.S. because you're seeing it, it command higher prices. Right. So what does that mean? It means that the supply of corn that we anticipated, the supply of soybean that we anticipated to come from the U.S. is gone, is, is actually going to go down. In fact, we got displaced um, uh, in terms of corn production um, earlier this year. We were the largest exporters for a very long period of time for decades. And we got overtaken by a few a few weeks ago. And the reason was not that we are producing less corn. We're producing more corn than we ever produced. But our corn has actually been consumed internally. It's being used for a lot of other reasons, other things. And we're not exporting as much as somebody else's. So everybody's production is going up, but somebody's actually exporting more than others. So when you start looking at the dynamic of this thing, that's when you start realizing this, the world is so interconnected that something like wheat or rice actually influences other things. So when you start thinking about this from a supply chain standpoint, you're not only worried about continuity supply on rice, we should also think about, okay, what is the side effect of that going to be in other grains in other parts of the world? So the point really here that we wanted to, well, what, what we, we've been talking about is that you need to be able to look at your supply chain end to end. You need to be able to look at sources of supply in different regions because these things are going to come. They're going to come one way or the other. Like weather patterns, we can't change. Geopolitical things, we think we can change, but for the most part, they happen, Right. Uh, and what we can control is really building resilience towards these kind of disruptions. Quality defects will happen, right? No matter what, the line downs will happen. We run into problems with our energy thing where, you know, hurricane hits and you know, certain parts of our economy will come to a stop. So what does this really mean? It means that we need to be able to look at our supply chain in a more resilient fashion. And that really means that our 
the few decades that we focused on efficiency and squeezing the most out of it and reducing these points, uh, uh, reducing places where you produce stuff down to a few so that you could get economies of scale and produce massive, even more than what you did in terms of mass production, has to diversify, right? And and this, and this and I would say the last most important thing is we've got to invest in our global supply chain infrastructure, not national, global, right? I, 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 you give the example of the Panama Canal crisis that's happening right now. The water levels, we depend on a freshwater lake to actually move ships between that thing. And when drought hits, you always have to balance between making sure there's drinking water for the population versus the ships moving between locks. And the trade-off will be the ships moving between locks, which essentially means the east-west flow of goods is going to be slower and slower. There are fewer ships that are going to move. So how do we actually do that? Ever since the canal was built, there's been plans to actually expand it, upgrade the locks so that not enough water is actually thrown out into the sea, but it's recycled. So these infrastructures have to be invested in, as an example, not at a national scale, right? At a global scale, because they're a lifeline for us. Most of the trade going back and forth between the East Coast and the West Coast of China, East Coast of China is through the canal, right? Back and forth, not just one country, but multiple countries benefit from it. So we've got to start thinking along those lines. Uh, so coming back to the thing, the, the point that we really wanted to highlight was that there's so much dependency in our supply chains now and so much dependency across nations in our supply chain that we have to think about this as, as really a global resiliency that we need to build in. Yep. And if I could throw something else in there, uh, when you get better at forecasting, ideally, we're going to get better and better at sustainability because one of the challenges we have right now is making stuff that never gets sold. Now, when you think about, and I'll use the example of a sweater for a minute, I, I have to do, uh, there's raw materials, it gets produce probably somewhere in Asia and then it gets shipped and it gets to a shelf somewhere and it goes out of style and it never gets sold. And my friend Ali Raza was on the podcast of not so long ago and he's from throughput. And he said, I think you said 30% of the stuff that we make never gets to the end consumer. Now, if you throw in food, there's a certain amount of food that is perishable. And some of it goes to waste. And ideally, we'd like to get to the place where we say, okay, we don't need as much chicken because for some reason we didn't sell all last week's chickens. And by the way, call the food bank because this stuff goes bad in the next five days. We'd rather go away, go somewhere for free rather than us throw it out. Throwing it out costs us money. But on top of that, there's hungry people in our uh, community. We can do so much better if we have that information. But I would also say, we don't think of everything perishable that actually is. I'm in Michigan. Selling shorts in Michigan is great right now in September because it's still warm. But come late September, people are going to go, I'm not going to buy those pair of shorts because it's almost winter. Last year's clothes become somewhat perishable. And Halloween candy the day after Halloween isn't worth much. Christmas decorations the day after Christmas and not worth much. And you could go, we see the Chinese New Year's in, in January. We see the stuff, it's worth nothing in February. So we have to do better because just the data allows us to make better decisions, not only for our businesses, but also for our environment. You're absolutely right, Joe. And I think for me, I look at supply chain really as one of the main contributors 
of what we're dealing with in terms of our climate and our environment. 80%. But it is also the most pointed way in which we can make a difference. Why expediting something that doesn't need to be expedited, producing something that doesn't need to be produced, storing something that was produced just because we produced it, keeping lines running just because we've got to keep lines running, and then disc- selling products on discount just because you got to get rid of them. Th- that whole concept of let's build it and we'll figure out a way to sell it. And by the way, if we don't sell it, we'll write it off. Like That mindset has to change because that write it off has to go back into somebody who can benefit from it that could not have afforded it at that same price point, right? Or cannot afford it at all that you're better off giving it. So I think I, I strongly believe in that. And the the, the, the word, the, the saying that comes to my mind is we not, we've not inherited the planet from our parents. We actually borrowed it from our children. Like we, we owe it to them because what we're doing- Sorry, kids. Are, the way we think <laughs> about it is has to change. And I think- our kids are actually forcing. My daughter forces me to tell dad, turn the tap off. Why are you wasting? Why do you need to print something? Dad, you, you can look at it on the screen. And we've got to get into that mindset. And same thing with manufacturing, same thing with supply chains. I got to tell you, I worked for a Silicon Valley company you know, over a decade ago. And it was very well funded. It was a Texas Pacific group. So it was a great company. And we were doing forecasting software. And I remember thinking when I first met the CEO, he said, the worst thing that you can have happen is not have enough product when you want to sell it. And I said, I agree. He goes, except (laughs) what's even worse is having too much. And I was like, I go, which is worse? He goes, both. (laughs) He goes, and that's, that is where we're at. We don't ever say, I'm going to make 8,642 sweaters because that's what we think will sell and we're always right. (laughs) No, we make 9,000 and throw some out or we make 8,000 and leave a whole bunch of sales on the table. But I will tell you where it gets really dicey is when if you're an automaker and you say, we think we're going to sell 100,000 units with that option and I facilitize a factory, I build a factory, facilitize it with automation, train people, and then I don't sell 100,000. I only sell 50,000. Now I've got a factory that's twice the size that it needs to be. And somebody might say, what if it's 130,000? Yeah, okay. So understanding using the data to make better decisions prevents me from spending tens of millions of dollars that are potentially at waste. And by the way, companies go out of business for such bad bets. It's really easy to make a bad bet Everybody gets on board and makes that bad bet together. And by the way, you start, everyone starts to fall in love with the idea we're building a new factory and it's going to be this big. And then you start fudging the data. That's what humans do. That's why we need AI to check us. <laughs> <laughs> but, but, but you've got to trust that AI because that AI is learning from us. <laughs> yeah. So anyway, let's, uh, let's wrap this bad boy up. Again, bridging supply chain silos with Pawan Josie. Juan, who's again the sweet spot for you guys? Who does E2Open sell to? And what problems do you solve for them? Yeah, so our problems are, the problems that we solve for our customers are truly end-to-end. Like the entire discussion that we had is is in many ways inspired by, you know, how we sell our customers' problems. How do you make sure that three, four, five tiers up in the manufacturing supply chain, you identified where your critical components are? How do you make sure, either in terms of continuity of supply, how do you make sure that your lines don't stop? 
How do you build relationship with them? How do you collaborate with them? How do you actually send them orders even though you're not the one ordering them? Because it's actually going to somebody else. So how do you get that relationship going? How do you make sure your factories or your contract manufacturers factories, whether they're making products or packaging products, don't stop? Um, how do you make sure that they're producing the right stuff based on what the market needs are, not based on what you are forecasting, but really what's pulling through? So being able to do that, uh, we run the planning process, both in, inside the four walls of the factory or outside the four walls of the factory to orchestrate that motion. We've got TMS that allow us, our customers, to better manage their freight or better manage uh, the, the freight process for their customers, like forwarders and MSPs. And then we also help our customers deal with global trade regulations, rules and regulations. We monitor changing rules and regulations 24-7 across, I would say, 220. That's never-ending. Never-ending. But we also file on behalf of our customers in 23 plus countries, some of the largest economies in the world. So we do that. We also keep track of free trade agreements so that our customers can leverage duty drawbacks and uh, other duty calculations to make sure that they're sourced from the right place. And then as you look at the spectrum, we also help them sell their products. How do you actually work with retailers, distributors to keep track of you know, how their inventory is selling through? Uh, how do you actually keep track of what they're buying? How do you incentivize them to carry your products over somebody else's products? How do you actually educate them on what the products do? How do you run automated channel um, uh, marketing programs, development funds? The, the idea really, if you, if you start getting the drift is, if we know what, the, what, what you're going to sell, number one, right? And forecast better. You sense what you're going to sell better. And if you can shape the sensing part, if you can influence people to buy your products in a better fashion, not, not influence them by selling inferior products, but if your products are at par, why would they buy yours versus somebody else's? How do you actually do it? Once you're able to do that, once you're able to forecast it, and you have certain influence on changing that forecast based on how it is moving, then you and then you have a very good demand signal to start getting the back of the supply chain organized. Transportation needs, your global trade needs, your manufacturing needs, your procurement needs. And that's where, and, and that is not true with just me and my factories, but then the same goodness flows through across multiple tiers on the supply side. That's really the problem that we're trying to get to. So most of our customers start by buying one or two things based on what their burning problem is. But over a period of time, they recognize the fact that being connected and breaking down these silos, organization silos, and breaking down these uh, technology silos of TMS versus a WMS versus a planning solution is really where the holy grail is because the optimization has to be holistic because the problem is holistic. You cannot just say me and my, my, my factories. It, it's, it's no longer the case, right? So that's really what we try to do for our customers is bring a platform in place that has applications but also underlying the applications is the ability to get data, right? So you rightly pointed out, we had filing cabinets which had all the data, but you had never access to that data. It's the same thing. That data exists in the supply chain somewhere. How do you get access to that data? And when you get access to the data, how, do you, how can you quickly digest it? How do you find that needle in the haystack of data to be able to say, this is my leading indicator that helps me move and make the right decision. So that's really what we bring to the table as an application platform with an underlying network that brings data in so you're focused on making the decision, not focused on getting data or what to do with that data. I love it. I love it. What I'll do is I'll put a link to your LinkedIn profile. I'll also put a link to your website and any other links you and your marketing team give me. Hawan, I like to interview smart, interesting people like you who are killing it in our space. Who else should I interview? That's a great question. I know a lot of great people, uh, but uh, off recent, I, I met a gentleman who has uh, taken on a, a relatively new role in an industry uh, of uh, freight forwarding. 
This gentleman's name is Brennan K. Kendall. He works for Crane Worldwide and he's their CIO. He's bringing a very unique perspective to an industry that typically uh, uh, the perception is uh, tends to be a technology laggard and the, not quick to adopt. I think forwarding is a, is a space that is actually bridging the gap around international trade in many ways and plays a very important role, not just in terms of transportation, but also has the ability to influence what happens before the product moves, but also has the influence to, to, have, to do what happens after the product is done. So Bren would be a great person to bring on board and bring up a, a different perspective, not a technology perspective, but a practitioner's perspective as he's bringing technology in to solve the problem. So I think he'll be a great, great addition. I, I appreciate that. And by the way, I've said it before on my podcast, if you look at an over-the-road transportation shipment, I'm shipping something to you, it might be me, a carrier, and you involved, right? If maybe there's a broker also. If I'm sending something to um, Vietnam, I've got to go a trucking company. It's got to be at a port. It's got to leave that port. It's got to go on a boat. It's got to go across many time zones, across many companies, many different port authorities and customs. And then it has to be picked up at a port in Vietnam or wherever and shipped. It's 13 hands versus three. It's And not only, usually if I'm shipping something here in the United States, it's maybe the same time zone, same language, same laws, Everything's the same. When we talk about freight forwarding, it is more complex and it's much more difficult to automate. We've all seen Flexport. By the way, I love their interface. What they've done is fantastic. And I think in a lot of ways, they've thrown the gauntlet down that we can all do better on this. And I know you guys probably have a competing product, but that's the expectation that we have as as consumers. And then you go to work the cool technology that you used at home, you think, I want that at work. <laughs> and so freight forwarding is going to catch up and it is harder. I mean, it, the reason it took longer is because it's harder. Absolutely. Yeah. So we do some work for them and alongside them, but that's an industry I think that is going to get transformed quite a bit. I think it's going yes. to more and more in this global world, more and more reliable. By the way, starting during the pandemic, and I know you guys can do this for me, starting during the pandemic, we started becoming more aware that the ports were a black hole for some of us, where you say, I have no idea. That left China four weeks ago. I don't know if it's at a port in LA. I don't know if it's at a warehouse 30 minutes from the port of LA. I don't know if it's floating around in the harbor. I have no idea where it's at. And now... Everybody who I talk to says, oh, no, we'll tell you. I, I know of companies like um, Portex Logistics, one of my sponsors. They say, we'll tell our customers your shipment is in the port before they know it. And used to be, if you ship something, you would call your freight forwarder and say, hey, can you give me an update? And he'd go, yeah, sure, Joe. I'll, I'll get back with you tomorrow. Yes. <laughs> That was, and that was not weird. That was not like, there was no complaining. That was, oh, okay. Yeah, he's very responsive. He's going to give you an answer tomorrow. (laughs) No, it's a different world now. I think that now the question- Not acceptable. Yeah, now it's not acceptable. Now the question really becomes, okay, you know where it is. What do you do about it, right? First it was, where's my stuff? Now you've got to answer the question, okay, so what? Now I know where my stuff is. So what do I do next? Exactly. So what conferences will we see you and the E to Open team at? 
So we are, uh, given the breadth of our portfolio, we are at pretty much every conference. We are at the Gartner Technology Conferences. We are at, we are, we are going to be at the Parcel Conference. That's going to come up next week. We are also at some of the industry conferences. TIA, CSM, CMP. Exactly. So we, we, are, we are fairly well represented across the board. But Joe, if you come across a conference that we need to be at, or we, it's a good place for us. Happy to look for that because what we are looking for. Well, is- I love Manifest. I'm sure you guys are at Manifest. No, we are at Manifest, yeah. I love that. Yeah. And I this morning, and it's not published yet because it was just this morning, but I talked to Ann Renke from TIA. So yeah, that's a great conference. They've got both the conference out to see our elected representatives in Washington. I think they call it the policy fly-in. And then they've got Technovations out in San Diego. Not a bad trip to make. Anyway, Juan, thank you so much. I really appreciate you coming on the podcast. You guys are doing some great things. I love it. Thank you for the opportunity, Joe. Enjoy the conversation. Look forward to it next time. Yeah, you're most welcome. And thank all of you for listening to my podcast. Your support's very much appreciated. Until next time, Onward and Upward. You have been listening to the Logistics of Logistics podcast, where we engage with leaders in the logistics and supply chain community. If you like what you hear, please subscribe, hit the like button, and leave us a nice review on Apple or Spotify or wherever else you listen. Also, please check out our videos on YouTube and connect with us on LinkedIn. We're very big on LinkedIn. And you can also reach us on the logisticsoflogistics.com, our website.